The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. Showtime! Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome one and all to Night Fright. Folks, the world's on fire like never before. Everywhere we look, there's war, conflict, refugees. In short, folks, there's a brewing storm coming. Now, in October of 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, we were so close to nuclear annihilation that Ted Sorensen, JFK's closest aide and speechwriter, told me personally that President Kennedy had called his wife, Jacqueline, to bring the two kids home, Carolyn and John, to the White House so they could all die together the next day. That's how close we were. The end of the planet and the human race seemed trapped on an unstoppable freight train to the apocalypse. However, Ted wrote the letter to Khrushchev, and the species-ending apocalypse was averted, at least for now. The question remains, though, can and would the human race ever destroy itself? Now, is it at all possible there has been precedent from the past that perhaps societies have wiped themselves off the map using WMDs only to begin again? Sounds strange, doesn't it? But let's look to the past and take a closer look with some examples from our guest tonight, Nick Redfern, and his new book, Weapons of the Gods. In the 1950s, folks, a buried layer of green glass, or trinite, extended for 100 miles in a desert of Israel. It was almost identical to the same substance that was found ominously at the site of the atomic bomb testing, the Trinity site in New Mexico. Now, a temperature of 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit is required to turn sand into trinite. Now, let's go over to India and accounts of irradiated cities, radioactive skeletons, and the remains of people suggesting they were stopped in their tracks by some terrible event. I'm going to bring it closer to home now. Researchers Richard B. Firestone and William Topping claim a nuclear catastrophe took place between 18,000 
and 8,000 BC in none other than the Great Lakes area in North America, where irradiated areas remain today. Now, what caused all this? Our guest tonight, Nick Redfern, is a world-famous researcher, lecturer, journalist, and author of more than 30 books, including Men in Black, Personal Stories and Eerie Adventures, Monster Files, A Look Inside Government Secrets and Classified Documents on Bizarre Creatures and Extraordinary Animals, and a whole list of other folks that you can find on the www.nightfrightshow.com website, and just click on our tonight's guest books, and that'll take you right to a place where you can get them from the comfort of your own home. Nick Redfern has been featured on Fox News, History Channel's Ancient Aliens, Monster Quest, and UFO Hunters, National Geographic Channel, BBC, and a whole bunch more. Get the coffee going, folks. Get the tea going. Get a beverage of choice. Kick back in that comfy chair. Man, have we got a great show for you tonight. Nick Redfern is a great guest, folks. You will not be disappointed. All the way from Dallas, I want to welcome Nick back. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Brent. I'm doing good, thanks. Other than, as you said at the beginning, the weather. It's uh, <laughs> People think Texas is sunny all the time, but we've had literally like six weeks of nothing but storms and... Uh, you know what it's like, and electric goes out, and then it comes back on again. So it's just been one of those times, and one of those evenings. <laughs> it's a good night to settle back and listen to yourself tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start off right away, shall we? Now, what intrigued me right away was I've never heard of this story about the Great Lakes. Where did this happen? Oh, well, yeah, this is a really interesting story. I mean, you know... The, one of the unfortunate things when we sort of research in these issues is that we actually really don't have to go far back into time before everything becomes quite sort of um, foggy, if you like, in the sense that, you know, the, the history of the planet isn't really that well known. But, um, and this sort of relates to this particular story of the Great Lakes, which, as you say, sort of dates back, um, well, there's a lot of, great deal of debate, sort of 10,000 years ago to about 20,000 years ago and somewhere in between. And it basically suggests the, the radiocarbon data from the area um, suggests uh, high levels, like massive irradiation in the distant past. Now, there's really only several ways which that can be explainable and you have the the completely down-to-earth explanations like a like a meteorite coming through the solar system entering the earth's atmosphere and heating up and slamming into the into the ground the other explanation is something like a comet so in other words the conventional explanations are that there's something down to earth to explain this phenomenon at the great lakes the alternative theory which um, of course most people or in the, at least in the scientific community, dismiss, is the idea of a nuclear strike. Now, regardless of whether they uh, sort of deny that scenario or not, the fact is a nuclear strike would also present the same sort of effects that we're seeing, or that have been found, I should say, in the Great Lakes area. So this is one of the sort of many examples that have been put forward, suggesting quite strongly that, you know, there could well have been ancient nuclear war, whether localized or, you know, on, on a worldwide scale. So it looks like we're creating the same scenario right now, which is kind of disturbing. So by just studying the past, maybe we can learn from it and avoid such a conflict in the future. Well, I would hope so, but, you know, the human race sometimes, you know, can be pretty... Um, 
pretty lethal, you know, and we don't. Mm. We sometimes do things without thinking. So, you know, it'd be my hope that we would learn from the past. But the worst case scenario is that we sort of, you know, we live in cycles. Um, and maybe, you know, sometimes speculated, could this be almost like down to nature that, you know, it's almost when things go wrong, nature steps in, and maybe every so often this sort of violent warlike species called the human race gets taken down a peg or two and then has to start again for the sake of the planet, you know. Mm -hmm. Kind of a cleansing that happens. Now, Yeah. there's a very interesting um, book or, or, or legend called the Mahabharata, yeah. which is the story of an ancient battle in India. I was wondering if you could tell the folks about that. Well, yeah, I mean, this is, um, you know, this is one of the sort of classic examples that I was talking about that, I mean, if, if anybody sort of addressed this issue of ancient nuclear warfare in the distant past, um, the Mahabharata, more than any other, I guess, is one of the things that crops up time and time again. And basically, it's this very ancient um, document, or should I say book, it's actually about three times the length of the Bible, so that kind of gives you an idea mm. of its sheer length. And uh, it's a very ancient Sanskrit writing, and Sanskrit is the, the uh, language of Hinduism. Now, essentially, it tells this particular story, which there's a great deal of debate as to when it actually um, occurred. But it tells a story of two warring families, the Pandavas and the Kauravas. And they were fighting this war uh, called the Kurukshetra War in northern India. And various scholars have put different dates, such as um, 400 BC, a couple of thousand BC, 6,000 BC. Some researchers have suggested that it actually might date back tens of thousands of years and actually tells a story that goes way back before, you know, accepted, accepted belief in terms of, you know, the, the kind of thing that, that, that we you know, have today in terms of technology. Um, now, if it is sort of really, really old, tens of thousands of years old, then you would imagine that a war in northern India would be fought with sort of, you know, shields, swords, spears, horseback, that kind of thing. But the Mahabharata actually talks about these mysterious iron thunderbolts and these um, aircraft. Well, aircraft is sort of, a, you know, a, a simple term, but vehicles that could take to the skies and cities were reportedly decimated and untold numbers of troops killed. And when you read the stories about this iron thunderbolt and these bright flashes and destruction of armies and cities, it actually does, you, I should say, you can actually sort of place this into sort of the context of a nuclear war, which a number of researchers have done. And then, of course, on the other side of the coin, you have people who say, well, it could just be a story and it's how it's interpreted. And, and I point this out in the book, you know, yes, I make sure people sort of get both sides of the coin. But I think it's important that when, you know, we get a story like this from India, then we get this mysterious irradiated area and bombardments in the United States. And it's all dating back into the, you know, tens of, uh, sort of thousands of years ago. Then you have to wonder, have we actually lost touch of a massive secret and possibly an earlier civilization or civilizations that flourished and destroyed themselves, as you said, that you know, in mm -hmm. the same way that me, uh, we might do that one day. Yeah, God forbid. Now, these ancient aerial craft, the uh, Vimanas, I, I hope I pronounced it. Yeah. Vimana, yeah. okay. Um, can you describe that for our audience? 
Well, that, that's a good question <laughs> because um, <laughs> it's it's very much sort of down to interpretation. Now, you have some people who've suggested they could have been sort of balloon-like objects, you know, sort of able to rise in the air, just like our balloons. Um, then if you look at some of the pictures online, um, you know, they kind of look almost like early sci-fi fantasy-type craft. Then other researchers have suggested they were sort of like the equivalent of modern-day jet fighters um, loaded with atomic weapons. That's why I actually call this particular um, chapter Top Guns Over India. And um, to demonstrate to people the, the sort of the extremes that have been put forward. But what to me, more than anything, is, is the most significant aspect is that within these ancient, and not just the Mahabharata, but within these ancient um, Indian manuscripts, we can find a lot of references to the gods and people even taking to the skies. And, you know, it's almost like that situation of where there's smoke, there's fire, that when you keep hearing these stories coming from one specific area of India, you have to wonder, is it just a parable or a folklore or a mythological tale? Or were they sort of distorted stories passed down over you know numerous generations of a time when there was advanced technology and people really were taken to the skies is there much evidence of, you know i think of archaeology all the time and they're always finding something new in the holy land they're always digging something up and finding new that authenticates the bible if you will in a historical sense have we found anything similar to actually authenticate perhaps a nuclear attack or something along those lines? You, you mean in the Bible itself? No, I, not in the Bible, no. but just in archaeology in general. Has there... Well, uh, well, again, I mean, it, it depends how we interpret it, and this is why there's so many, so much controversy surrounding this issue, and I'll explain mm -hmm. what I mean by that. Um, you know, you can look at some of these stories and place them into a sort of a nuclear context, specifically because it sort of actually does parallel the, the technology that we have today. Now, of course, people who sort of accept the Bible, Bible literally or other ancient um, religious manuscripts would interpret that literally, you know, that, that it was the wrath of God or, or gods or, or et cetera, et cetera. And so it is a lot of it, when you talk about proof and evidence, a lot of it is admittedly down to interpretation. I mean, probably the, the best example of how we could interpret things in two ways would be the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, perfect. And the story yeah. is told in the, the book of Exodus in the, uh, in the Bible, uh, excuse me, the book of Genesis, and it, tells, it basically tells the story um, of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and also two other cities in the same area as well. There's actually five cities, four of which were destroyed, but it's really only Sodom and Gomorrah that everybody knows about the others have been sort of forgotten um and the you know the the official story so to speak the biblical story is that it was due to god's wrath as to didn't like the way the people of the, the cities were living and decided to to wipe them out and destroy the cities and you know people would say what well, sort of you know fire thunder and god's wrath um now on the other hand if we look at it from like a nuclear context, there's actually some really interesting material. For example, the predominant character in the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is Lot. And Lot and his wife and daughters, <coughs> excuse me, they receive this mysterious visit from these equally 
mysterious visitors uh, who warned them that the cities were going to be destroyed and essentially they better get the hell out of Dodge. <laughs> you know, that was what it came down to. Right away. And, yeah. yeah, as in right away. And they were told to flee the cities and, you know, whatever you do, don't look back. Now, the whole issue of not looking back is really interesting in a nuclear context because troops on the battlefield are taught that, you know, if we ever go into war and sort of tactical nuclear weapons are used on the battlefield by an enemy nation, you should protect your eyes because the flash, never mind the radiation or the blast, you actually, you know, don't have to be right close to the, to the explosive point. But if you happen to be looking at it at the time of detonation, you can actually have flash blindness, which can damage your eyesight, or in a worst-case scenario, um, blind you for good, you know, for the rest of your entire life. So actually telling them not to turn back and look would actually be the perfect um, information to be told. Now, it doesn't end there. For example, the one thing that, you know, whether people believe the Bible or not, the one thing I guess everybody knows is that Lot's wife supposedly turned round or turned back. There's a lot of sort of hazy interpretations of the original text. Turned round or turned back and was changed into a pillar of salt. Now, of course, people say, well, how on earth could a nuclear bomb turn a person into a pillar of salt? Well, the answer is it, it couldn't. It's impossible. But what's particularly notable is that, obviously, you know, the Bible wasn't written in English because all the events occurred mm -hmm. sort of the Middle East and surrounding areas, Egypt, etc. Um, and so people wonder, well, as I said, how could a person be turned into a pillar of salt? Well, the answer could well be that because in the original texts, the, um, the word for salt was actually interchangeable for the word vapour. So, in other words, oh. Lot's wife may not have been turned into a pillar of salt. She may have been vaporised. And that's sort of one of the sort of very bleak aspects of a nuclear attack. If you're the size of the bombs we have today, if one were to detonate over a major city, um, the blast zone, the initial blast zone, would be at least five or six miles. Anything within that area would literally be vaporised. There'd be nothing left. It wouldn't be like... The, uh, the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki where you've got rubble and you know damage etc and millions of people burned in that area now the the size of Hiroshima uh, today in terms of you know one of these really powerful atomic bombs there would not be anything left of that city it would have been vaporized so we can make a strong case that that's exactly what happened with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened with Lot's wife that she perhaps didn't just turn back but she went back and that would explain why Lot and his daughters survived but his wife didn't because she decided to go back to the city and in essence sort of sealed her fate. Yeah I think you're absolutely right you know I studied Torah for a little bit in Montreal and uh, Torah is the Jewish Bible folks and um, each word that's in the Torah it's not there by accident if if it yeah. says that she turned around to go back or turned back, that means something. It's not just a, a little description that um, she had just turned around or something. She was headed back there with good reason. Yeah. And uh, so we have to take that into account, too. Now, what's also interesting about this is I think they have found what they believe is the actual site of Sodom and Gomorrah, have they not? In the Holy Land? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, again, it's down to interpretation. There's, yeah. you know, there was re reports of, you know, the the discovery of an ancient city in the area where 
sort of conventional history, if you like, suggests that that's where it actually was. Uh, but again, you know, people have said, well, that's dependent on the previous interpretations have actually got the right location, you know. So, uh, again, we're, we, we're dealing with issues that are sort of deeply buried in, like, the fog of time. And we're struggling still even today to figure out exactly what was where and when and, you know, how it relates to these stories. And so in that sense, you know, I, I would always urge caution because we're just not really sure, you know. And, and I prefer to sort of, you know, tell people what evidence we have got and, and where it's all so hazy. That way, you know, I prefer to do that than sort of, sort of bang on the table and say this is the actual answer, you know, when we don't. I think the responsible approach is to, to prevent all, excuse me, to present all the evidence and show what we what seems to be going on, but always sort of, you know, err on the side of caution, so to speak. Yeah, that's what I like about your book so much at Absolute, and all your book, all your works uh, do that. And, um, you know, you don't get on a, uh, the bandwagon, if you will, and um, you present both ideas and put them in context, which is really refreshing. Then, oh, well, thanks. Uh, I, yeah, I think it's the best way to do it, because yeah, if we're honest with ourselves, you know, we, in all aspects of anything related to UFOs and extraterrestrials, and particularly so in ancient times, mm-hmm. we're still struggling to figure out what the situation really is. And so I think as long as we can get all the information out there, that's the important thing. Uh, but I don't sort of have much time for people who say, I know that the aliens have a base on the far side of Mars or something, and they mm-hmm. crashed mm-hmm. here in 12,441 BC. Well, we don't know that, you know. It doesn't mean they didn't crash land, but if you're going to make really specific statements, you've got to back it up with hard evidence. And in terms of the nuclear story, ancient nuclear war, I do believe there's some genuinely really strong data, but we need to sort of be moderate, you know, in terms of how we relate it to people, purely and simply because, you know, it, it is highly controversial. What was that single piece of data that you just mentioned? That was the epiphany for you to write this book. Oh, well, I mean, I would, there's actually several things. I mean, you Please. made a good point at the beginning. Go um, you know, when you talked about the, the Trinitite-type glass. Trinitite, mm-hmm. when the first atomic bomb was tested in New Mexico in uh, the summer of 1947, excuse me, summer of 1945, just before the end of the Second World War, the, the team, which was sort of largely overseen by Dr. J. Robert Oppenheimer, they, when they were going to drop the bombs on Japan, they had, prior to that, there was a test bomb which was exploded in the New Mexico desert, just on the fringes of the uh, White Sands Missile Range, as it's called today. And the area was called the Trinity Site. Now, one of the unforeseen aspects of exploding the bomb was the sheer incredible temperatures that are provoked by an atomic bomb. It actually uh, vitrified the sandy desert floor in New Mexico and it essentially turned the sand, because of the incredible heat, into a glassy-like substance that was named or was termed Trinitite after the area uh, where it happened, the Trinity site. And there's been a number of places around the world where stuff, material, eerily similar to Trinitite has been found, sort of in the Australias, um, Libya, um, various parts, other parts of Africa and the Middle East, and clearly dating back thousands upon thousands of years. 
Now, again, you know, conventional science would suggest, well, these are just the results of meteorite strikes or something like that. But, you know, when it's so very similar to Trinitite and it's found in these sort of areas which were, you know, significant portions of the biblical tales mm -hmm. you know, thousands of years ago, you have to wonder if, you know, it really was just meteorite strikes or are we seeing the equivalent of somebody else's ancient equivalent of Trinitite. And that was really, to get back to your question, that was one of the sort of strong points that led me to want to write the book, was the fact that when we go looking for it, we do find a certain degree of evidence in support of the theory. And I think this ancient Trinitite one is a very good example. Yeah, I love the ancient mysteries of the world, and, uh, you know, kudos to you for exploring them and giving us a level-headed approach to them as well. The other thing I wanted to ask you is when, is there any way of dating these various areas of Trinitite uh, to the same approximate time, perhaps uh, a global nuclear war, for example, as opposed to a blast here, a blast there, maybe a thousand years later. Is there any way of dating those to some kind of well, conclusion? Well, yeah, we, we can to a degree. But um, the, the problem is that one of the things I've found is that, you know, today if we were to have a, a nuclear war, obviously our civilization is worldwide, and it would eventually, you know, it would probably a very quick time, and it would go from like a minor skirmish, you know, in disputed waters between China or somewhere like that, and people would soon get sucked in, and, and you know, somebody yeah. starts flexing the muscles. Oh God, and yeah. if it went to a nuclear war, it would be worldwide. Now, when it comes to these ancient wars, if that's what they were, what we seem to have there is actually something very different, where I, I really don't think there were huge worldwide civilizations before ours in the way we interpret it because i think we would have found a lot more evidence of it what i think is we're probably dealing with a situation where um there were localized skirmishes now that's okay. sort of not out of the question because if you imagine you know in our 21st century today there are still people living in you know the south american jungles in in huts and hunting with spears yeah, you know okay. and mm -hmm. And, you know, that's totally different to our civilization. So my personal view or theory would be that there were areas of the planet which flourished in terms of atomic weapons, but they were very localized, sort of India, Libya, I said Africa, Middle East, etc., etc. And it would be far easier to see those civilizations wiped out if they were small and localized you know we kind of think of it that if you can have nuclear weapons and high technology you'll be a massive widespread civilization but the irony could be they could really have advanced to a significant amount but still remained um and essentially but not expanded worldwide and so in other words the to sort of get to the root of what you said a lot of these destructions if that's what they were often sort of widely differ between date, certain dates of events. For example, Sodom and Gomorrah, most religious scholars suggest was sort of three, four, five thousand years ago. The Mahabharata, some people have put it tens of thousands of years ago. And, you know, others sort of, as I said, with um, the Great Lakes, could go back as far as 18,000 uh, 18, B.C., mm -hmm. So, you know, in that sense, we could be looking at sort of localized civilizations, not sort of just one global war followed by another global war. Is it possible also, I wanted to ask you, that 
You know, you always hear the ancient alien theory coming out. Is it possible that this was a fight amongst the ancient aliens as opposed to various tribes or various groups of people here on Earth? Or perhaps a well, combination yeah. thereof? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you know, that's actually something I talk about in the book. Yeah. What are we actually looking at? Are we looking at just ancient human civilizations that developed atomic weapons? Are we looking just at visiting or even sort of... Uh, long-staying extraterrestrials that sort of fought turf wars on the planet with atomic weapons, possibly even between each other? Or is it a case that ancient visiting extraterrestrials may have uh, sort of upgraded, possibly even genetically, certain aspects of the human species and essentially sort of gave them the power of the atom? And so is it a combination of the two? And I think, I think actually that is possibly the answer, is that we're dealing with advanced humans, but where there may well have been extraterrestrial interaction as well. Input as well. Folks, we're dealing with a, a terrific book tonight. It's called Weapons of the Gods, How Ancient Alien Civilizations Almost Destroyed the Earth. Nick Redfern's our guest, and fans of the show will know Nick's been on many times, and uh, always top-notch stuff and top-notch research he brings to the show. And very excited to have him back again to talk about this particular subject. So many questions I have. <laughs> this is a subject that really hits home for me. Now, another spot, Death Valley. Now, I have to give you a little bit of a, um, I guess, a context on this one, because you're talking about underground cities, or the possibilities of some underground cities. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I had Brian Forrester on. We were talking about the Paracas elongated skulls and the Paracas people. And the Paracas people lived underground. So it was very common for ancient cultures to live underground. So I was wondering if you could tell the story about Death Valley, because that's right there in the States. Well, yeah, again, you know, that's what's interesting, bring us back to the U.S. And now Death Valley, you know, is sort of a very appropriate name, and they don't call it Death Valley for no reason, you mm. know. <laughs> it's, uh, the extreme temperatures it has... People die out there. Um, but there's also, you know, another aspect to this as well, the idea that it is sort of like a, a valley of death. Now, there are a number of stories, uh, predominantly going back to the 1930s, of prospectors and Indiana Jones-type characters reportedly finding evidence of underground cities. Now, we're talking about sort of ruins of, I guess what we could sort of parallel with, you know, the, the sort of things you would see in ancient Greece or ancient Rome, things like that. Now, of course, some of these stories are sort of apocryphal, others are less so, and they actually made a lot of the newspapers back in the 30s. You can find some of these stories online, you know, with the, the scans of the original newspaper reports. So it's not sort of, um, you know, just friend of a friend stuff. We, we have sort of a, a point of origin for these accounts. And... You know, we, again, when you look at it from the idea of sunken cities deep below the desert and the remnants of ancient civilizations that may have been highly advanced, yeah. you do have to wonder the idea, you know, at some point during the course of these sort of atomic wars, was a sort of a determined effort made by some of the survivors to head deep underground, which would make a great deal of sense because when we're talking about things like, you know, lethal radiation, that's sort of one of the big hazards if, you know, God forbid it ever happens, but if say there was like a major nuclear strike uh, on a, you know, let's just say hypothetically on an American city. And even if you were living 20 miles away from it, the massive storms 
that the explosion and the ex massive winds that would be created, you know, traveling at hundreds of miles an hour, would blast, you know, the, the, cl the clouds of dust and dirt would just be filled with radiation. You could be 20 miles away, and if your windows are being blown out, you know, but the city 20 miles away is destroyed, you might think you're safe until sort of a week later, you know, you start to feel sick and you start throwing up and coughing blood up, and that's a sure sign, you know, you're going to and die from radiation poisoning, yeah. which you're just not going to see radiation. So, you know, in other words, we've, we've got that situation as well, where, you know, there's, there's so much to sort of think about from our perspective, but also, you know, from the perspective, like in Death Valley, it would make, in that situation, it would make perfect sense to go underground because that's where you would likely have a better chance. You know, we'd be kind of stuck you know, in our, what's left of our homes, because where are we going to go underground, you know what I mean? And um, so that might explain a lot of these rumours about massive building of underground chambers and bunkers around the planet that, you know, people are sort of preparing in the event that this might happen. I have to, I'm going to go in on a limb here, and I'm not going to break a confidence, though. I was told in confidence by a guest who was on the show that he has seen the underground cities. Now, oh, well. I, you don't think of New York, folks. <laughs> you know, uh, Nick put it very well into perspective. Uh, there's tunnels and things of that nature. You know, you're not going to find, um, what was it? What was the name of that movie? Planet of the Apes, where Charlton Heston's mm -hmm. walking along the yeah. beach and runs into the, uh, the remnants of the Statue of Liberty. No, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about underground cities, underground places, dwelling places, let's put it that way. And uh, I can't mention the fellow's name, but um, apparently he's seen them. So uh, I'm going to go and on a limb and say, yeah, I'm pretty sure that something like that actually exists out there. So there you go. Now, this is a very good intro because we're talking about melted, vitrified ruins. Can we talk about the Scottish ones? Because, folks, this is a phenomena that's right around the globe, and this is what I like, because these ancient mysteries, when we, do, when we discover them in various aspects across the globe, it brings people together instead of dividing people. And you know that. I'm all about that. That's what I really like. Can we talk about that? Well, yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, the, you know, when you think of sort of ancient nuclear warfare, even sort of just a brief scan of information on the Internet would sort of suggest to most people that you're talking about, like, for example, India, Pakistan, Middle East, Africa, Libya, you know, the list goes on, South America. And, uh, but a lot of people don't think about Scotland, you know, sort of being yeah. the site of a ancient nuclear attacks or, you know, the, the result of um, bizarre weaponry that we don't understand. Now, in Scotland, you know, which has a long history of, of culture and and, and sort of different civilizations and groups like the like the Celts, for example, and you go back thousands of years, you know they're sort of very much warring tribes, and um, you know they had turf wars and et cetera et cetera and so a lot of them built um, essentially what were called like 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 hill forts, so in essence, you know because Scotland's quite hilly, you build these strategic forts so you can see the landscape all around you in the event that a uh, sort of a you know a rival tribe is going to try, try and take over your land and your and your fort. Um, what's intriguing is that many of these forts are kind of vitrified in the same way, well not the same way, but in a similar way to the way in which the Trinitite 
was formed at the um, the blast site in mm-hmm. New Mexico and at other atomic bomb explosions where you've got like a sandy desert. But in the case of the vitrified forts in Scotland, what we have is not in every fort, but in some of them, the, the stones and the rocks that are involved in the construction have been uh, essentially heated, melted and vitrified as a result of incredible temperatures. Now, skeptics have suggested, well, maybe the vitrification was actually done very, very slowly and it was designed as like a form of cement, you know, to melt the stones and then sort of bind them together. But ironically, uh, vitrification as it relates to this type of these type of stones actually makes them less uh, strong and far more fragile due to the heating process. And so, in other words, you have this situation where it would work against them to, you know, to sort of just extensively heat, um, you know, the stones and the rocks for days and days. And, of course, if it was something that was done by an enemy using something like a flamethrower, mm. well, you would imagine that they would defend themselves equally quickly. Um, so, in other words, the big question is what sort of incredible high-heat weapon or technology could literally sort of melt the stones and the rocks and, and vitrify them, you know, the outer walls of these forts. Now, one potential answer that I talk about in the book, you know, I mentioned about the Celtic tribes, etc. Yes. Well, they had a, a story that's extended from, actually from Wales, Scotland and Ireland, of a Celtic god named Lou, L-U-G-H. And he supposedly had this magic spear that could fire thunderbolts and he would sort of soar around the sky and fire thunderbolts at anything or anyone that sort of that sort of gathered his uh, displeasure if you like um and when you read these stories of lou and this um this sort of magical um thunderbolt or spear it actually reminds me a little bit of something along the lines of like an air-to-air missile or an air-to-surface missile launched from some sort of aerial vehicle Uh, And again, it's not hard to put it in that context when you put the whole story together and when you apply it to the, you know, the melting of the of these forts. Or even an RPG, some kind of RPG rocket launch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, like a tactical device, something along those lines. And I think, you know, maybe Lou wasn't a god. Maybe Lou was somebody who had, you know, human extraterrestrial or some genetic part of both who knows but i mean it could possibly have been someone who sort of took to the skies in some advanced craft and you know waged war against the sort of early people in those areas well that's a pretty good segue let's go into that in just a second i just want to tell uh into tesla and death rays in just a second i just want to tell folks who we're speaking with folks we're speaking with nick redfern tonight he's got a new book out called weapons of the gods how Ancient Alien Civilizations Almost Destroyed the Earth. www.nightfrightshow.com Click on tonight's guest book covers. There will be plethora there. <laughs> and order the book from the comfort of your own home. I also want to give two shout-outs. One to Kelly Logue, who puts this show together on the Internet for us, maintains the website. He's got two ebooks out, folks. There's a link there. Support Kelly. They're 99 cents each. He's written them himself, and he deserves all the support that we can give him. So I would appreciate that. And thank you, Kelly, always from the bottom of my heart for supporting the show the way you do. Also, final shout-out, 
I don't know if you can see that picture, folks. It's a postcard sent from Roswell, New Mexico. My uh, rocket science nephew, and he really is a rocket science nephew from Stanford, as I hold up my Stanford cup, he sent me. No, I didn't go to Stanford. I went to McGill in Montreal. Anyways, um, he, was out, he was out there. He's done another balloon launch, and um, you may have seen him on CNN and uh, ABC and the morning show and all that for his balloon launch that he did uh, several months ago. That was found in New Mexico by some natives, and uh, just fascinating stuff he does. It's just amazing. And I used to play spaceman with him when he was little. So there, Tyler, I got you back. Tyler's a grown man now. He certainly doesn't want to hear Uncle Brent talk about that. Okay, back to Nick Redfern. www.nightfrightshow.com. The book is called Weapons of the Gods. Just before we took the the break, I was going to bring up Tesla, and you know Tesla. People can find shows on Tesla at Night Fright Show. There's tons of shows on um, Nicholas Tesla in the archives. Now, he had something called Death Rays. Could we talk about that and how it relates to Archimedes? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, this, this is sort of, a, a, I guess, a lesser-known area of this entire story. Uh, you're right. I mean, Nikola Tesla was sort of one of the foremost people um, who was, you know, in, in earlier times, so to speak, mm-hmm. not that long ago, you know, sort of a century ago, who was really at the forefront of doing fringe research that had he not died and had his papers not been confiscated, etc., etc., the world today might be very different to how it actually is. You know, we might have the equivalent of something like free energies yeah. and, you know, wouldn't be reliant on oil. The, the world could be radically different. He had all sorts of weird plans, you know, for... Uh, sort of fueling entire civilizations on next to nothing. Um, but of course, you know, a lot of, it's like anything, technology can be used for good and bad. And um, one of his big areas as well was so-called death rays and, you know, technology like that. And of course, we think, you know, if you think of death rays, you think of sci-fi, and you think of something that's sort of relatively uh, recent, so to speak. However, if, you, if we look back, um, you know, into the very distant past, for example, uh, we have the story of Archimedes. And essentially Archimedes, there's stories about how he supposedly came up with what some people might call sort of a death ray. But in many, although it wasn't actually a death ray, in many respects it demonstrated the sort of ingenuity, sheer ingenuity of Archimedes, how he came up with this incredible weapon. And essentially what it was, I mean, everybody knows that, say, for example, if you get a piece of glass, and like a magnifying glass, and you put it over like a bit of grass or a bit of um, straw or something like that, and you've got the sun's rays going through it, it'll soon heat the grass up and, you know, it'll suddenly ignite. That's why we get forest fires often and things like that. Um, and Archimedes came up with this really intriguing idea of creating like a huge, essentially like a huge mirror that could reflect the sun's rays and it would be uh, essentially on like hanging on a on a device where it could sort of spin around and be unfocused on various different portions of the ocean so that any invading forces they would sort of direct this huge shield like uh, device at the ships and particularly the, the woodwork and the sails and try and ignite them and reportedly it happened extremely successfully to the point where you know the ships would burst into flames or there'd be just chaos on you know on, on the part of the invading forces so you know and then that's sort of given rise to well you know how did Archimedes develop this was it from some earlier civilization 
that he inherited ancient texts? Uh, did he come up with the idea himself? We really don't know. But, I mean, you know, for him to come up with a weapon like this is sort of a, you know, a really fantastic thing. And he also came up with something that's become known as Archimedes' claw. And it was this sort of, it sounds bizarre, but it's absolutely true because we have ancient uh, pictures of it, etc., going back hundreds and hundreds of years, paintings and so on, of this giant, almost like a huge robotic claw that could lift enemy ships out of the water and then drop them back down, you know, and kill the people on board, etc. And, it, and it's, again, it sounds like sci-fi, but it was something that, whether he designed it or not, you know, who can say? But, um, you know, certainly it's something that... Um, was sort of far beyond, you know, anything that anybody else in the world was trying, not so much had achieved, but even was trying to achieve, you know. Geez, you know, and it, it made me think of something, um, the fact that I've never seen a species excel so well at creating things to kill each other than the human race. It's unbelievable how we make weapons of mass destruction and bigger and better. And we're now working on a death ray ourselves. We're working on a, a kind of laser, if you will, that will not only blind people, but could actually cause them to catch fire as well. So we're just an incredible species, are we, aren't we? <laughs> you know, we could feed the world, folks, but no, we have to spend money on this. Well... The problem is, you know, today we're in a position, you know, years ago, decades ago, hundreds of years ago, yes. everybody's fighting, but it didn't impact on anybody else. The big problem today, of course, is, you know, that we have the ability to pretty much wipe out civilization for, well, it would probably, it would take probably 10,000 years, 15,000 yes. years to, to recover, you know, and there would be, it would just be complete work. People probably wouldn't understand, you know, it's not like those old Cold War footage you would see where they tell the kids to get under the table at school, you know. Duck and cover, um, I think it was called. Yeah, duck and cover. That's more sort of propaganda so people don't didn't worry. Uh, but reality, you know, would be that certainly in all of the Western Hemisphere and a lot of the Southern Hemisphere, life would be like 95, 96% wiped out. Cities would be flattened, you know, and the, the people who did survive, they would have to fight against radiation, which would probably take 20, 30 years off their lives if they even survive that. And their children that would be born would be stunted, they'd be illiterate, you know, they'd have no concept of reading, writing, or even who we were, you know, you, you imagine it just, and then their children and their children. By that time, it would be back to sort of like primitive man, you know, and it would take, a, I'm sure, a huge amount of time to recover. So, you know, that's the problem today. We have the, the ability as a species to just destroy civilization not in days or weeks but in hours you know the world could be over in hours if Absolutely. everybody just pressed the buttons so. yeah and i'm going to jump back to the cuban missile crisis for a second there was a general general lemay who was in charge of sac and he wanted to go in and attack with nuclear weapons his attitude was ted Sorensen told me that we could survive a nuclear attack because we had more weapons than they did which is absolutely insane because yeah. as well, it's even more insane today oh, because, completely. you know, people are talking about, you know, fighting a nuclear war. It's impossible. No, One of can't. the main reasons is can't because, win. well, you can't, no side, you know, despite all the sort of the blustering and muscle flexing and all this and shouting at each other, at the end of the day, every side knows that it's impossible to win, but they just want to, that's why, you know, you get all these things where, 
you know, the, the Russians are, you know, sort of flying low over our aircraft carriers and whatever. Exactly. It's not because they want to start a war. They just want, don't want us to forget they're around. And they want us basically say, hey, we're the badasses, you know, we'll look, we, look what we can do. But they don't really want to go to war any more than anybody does. And one of the reasons why you can't win a nuclear war is because all major nations on the planet have spy satellites in orbit. And one of the things those spy satellites do, or specific ones, they just monitor the potential enemy's nuclear missile silos so they can tell within seconds when the doors open to the silos. And there's a heat if they read the heat signature, it means, you know, the missile's not just armed, but it's, it's starting, you know, it's going um, to be launched. Yeah. And so, in other words, even if they launched all their missiles, almost within seconds we would be able to know that they were firing at us and we would fire back immediately and so nobody would win you know and um because nobody can launch a surprise attack now the big thing that we do have to worry about of course is not i think so much a worldwide nuclear war but the very big danger of first from something like a dirty bomb yes. which essentially you know being smuggled into a major city and sometimes people get confused between a dirty bomb and an atomic bomb or a nuclear bomb. You know, when you've got a nuclear weapon, it's basically the, the atom is split and the sheer power creates this, an atomic explosion. A dirty bomb essentially is, is basically having a normal bomb, but then you sort of fill it with uh, radioactive materials. So it explodes like a normal bomb, but it showers radioactive materials across, you know, say, quarter of a mile. That's the big threat today because nobody's launching, nobody would be launching them out of silos or out of submarines. You know, it'd be some maniac walking down the street with it in his backpack and then just presses the button. And then whatever city it is, you know, for a quarter of a mile in every direction, it's out of bounds for the next 45 years, you know, due to lethal radiation. That's the big threat, you know, that, which is like a, a scary threat, you know, if that happens. Then so. they have the perfect delivery system for it, too. Yeah. Suicide bombers. Yeah, right. yeah. You know, yeah. There's, not, there's no thought of escape. They'll just push the button and off they go. So, yeah, that is a legitimate, legitimate threat, and it's something that we have to look at, which is a great segue into what Mr. Oppenheimer said. Now I have become death the destroyer of worlds. But he also mentioned something else that I was unaware of, Nick, till I read your book. And that is, he said, in modern times at least, I was wondering if you could give the pretext to that statement. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Dr. J. Robert Oppenheimer, I mean, he was very much, although, the, you know, the Manhattan Project, which oversaw the development of the atomic bomb, um, Although, you know, there were tens of thousands of people involved altogether at varying degrees. He was the guy who's really become acknowledged as the major force and the development, you know, of the atomic bomb. But he was kind of like a Dr. Frankenstein, a real-life Dr. Frankenstein, in the sense that he created this life, if you like. You know, he gave life to the atomic weapon. But then, he, like Dr. Frankenstein, he came to regret what he'd actually done. And, um, you know, essentially he was in a position where he wished he hadn't developed it, even though he admitted that, well, yes, it did end the Second World War. But as I said, he wished, you know, there had been another way to do it. Um, what's interesting is that Oppenheimer was actually quite obsessed with the Mahabharata and also um, various other uh, Indian texts, Ramayana, for example. And he 
quite often, I mean, to the extent that he would quote uh, from them, from a lot of these ancient Indian texts, and certainly the most famous one um, was, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And that was a quote from one of these ancient texts. And it was sort of, you know, it weighed on him and um, certainly had an effect on his health. And eventually, because he became so um, against what he'd done, he lost his top secret clearance. Now, what happened in 1950, in the early 1950s, he was uh, at a seminar on atomic weapons, and one of the people in the audience asked him, you know, the, the atomic bomb that was dropped in New Mexico as a test, and then the two dropped on Japan, he was asked, were they the first atomic weapons ever used? And Oppenheimer sort of thought about it for a second, and he said, yes, they were, then he paused and added, in modern times, as if to say, well, yes, they were the first ones in modern times, the implication being but they weren't the first necessarily the ones, you know, if we look at things from an ancient perspective. It was almost as if he was trying to answer the question and share something he may have had secret knowledge of, but without actually coming out and directly saying it. So, um, you know, I suspect that because he was sort of so familiar with the stories in the Mahabharata, even he could have thought, wow, you know, this actually sounds like something that we've just done you know and he, and he yeah. recognized in his mind the parallels and i think he probably then suspected that wow you know we're not actually the first nick when you do profound research like you've done for this book weapons of the gods and you're dealing with and species and species ending cataclysms and things of that nature did it change you has it changed your perspective at all well I wouldn't say to change my perspective on world events. The, the, I guess from my perspective, you know, it, it's it's sort of a bit of a disturbing thing, the idea that the human race could be sort of like a, you know, a warlike creature that, or which, uh, you know, every so often has to be cleansed. You know, this almost sort of ties in with something that kind of really interests me, which is the, the Gaia theory. I don't know if you know that, but it's yes, the idea that the planet itself is sort of like a living entity. You know, it's not just a, a planet that we live on that just happens to have oxygen and water and life and et, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What if the planet itself is some sort of like an intelligent entity? That, that's the Gaia theory. And so the, the theory goes from there. What if, you know, every so often the, the planet has to get rid of this cancerous intrusion, which basically is us? And so it finds a way of, of nature fighting back against the thing that's causing all the problem. You know, and maybe we have extinction events or, you know, the next one could be a worldwide virus that drops us down to, you know, 1% of the population or whatever. Um, you know, you, you find in nature that nature finds a way of cleansing things or preventing, you know, things from happening. It's like, for example, you know, people who river or sort of, uh, partaking like cannibalism you find these tribes in the jungles that they start getting equivalents of like for example human equivalents of like mad cow disease because they're eating the brains of people and you're not supposed to do that and nature has a way of affecting the people who do do that as if you know as if to try and put a block on it you know to do things that are against nature and so i do sometimes wonder it gets into sort of very sort of um esoteric and almost like spiritual areas sure, but yeah. the idea mm -hmm. of the planet sort of rebelling against us and maybe it's a cycle you know it comes in cycles that we sort of um we rise 
we screw things up and then in the Gaia scenario something comes along and synchronistically gets rid of us and you know and then when it comes when we're becoming too much of a, a hassle again something else crops up you know I, I sometimes ponder on that so I wouldn't say it's so much all yeah, my the music, perspective but it's you know it's a, an interesting area I want to thank Nick Redfern for joining us tonight the book folks is Weapons of the Gods www.nightfrightshow.com thank you Nick a super trooper through Thanks this. Thanks a lot, Brent. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. See you all next time. First-person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.